Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI on Gripped. Today is the 22nd of January. We hope you've been well since last we spoke. Michael, how have you been? I've been grand, Gary. Fine, enjoying the brisk breath to cold weather. So, to uh, start with, we do have a, a very short period of uh, congratulations. Uh, Seamus Wolf, our favourite Supreme Court judge, is now on the docket to actually hear cases, meaning he has finally been let in from the cold possibly after battling the rest of the judges in some sort of battle for honour, I would assume. I'm not quite sure how the judiciary actually works, Michael. I assume there's a mace involved at some point. Possibly a flail. Maces and flails and, oh, I think high heels and garters and fiddly buttons and all sorts of things. You know, it's no wonder it takes so long to become a fully qualified lawyer in this country. The, 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 the detail is just terrific. And in incredibly petty news that I just want to mention because it's funny, our relationships with uh, Britain, or more accurately relationships between Europe and Britain, have now devolved to the point where Britain is refusing to recognise EU ambassadors, saying that they don't actually represent a country and therefore shouldn't get ambassadorial powers. Yeah, and the EU basically saying, well, that's just them being silly and they just have to stop being silly and nasty and you know just grow up or else there'll be trouble. And people go, well, yeah, trouble, what trouble, go on. It's incredibly petty, but at the same time, I think the British have just went, well, what are you going to do? Because EU member states are not going to refuse to recognise British diplomats, because we're an actual country. So, what have you got here? If you're going to be so petty as to actually look at the thing from, a, shall we say, technical Point, legal point of view. The EU is not a sovereign country, it's a sovereign nation. In the answer to the great question that the Americans have always asked, in the event of a nuclear war, who do I phone in Europe? Well, you don't. You don't. You, you phone, well, it used to be phone the Prime Minister of Great Britain, now you phone the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, it is a union, it is not a federation or a confederation yet. And until it is, until we have some kind of a, a, a supranational superstructure, it's a, a union of sovereign nations. So you have the Italian ambassador, the Belgian ambassador, the German ambassador, the Irish ambassador, and so on and so forth. So now, having said that, you know, it is what it's all a bit better. Well, you know, if they want to have an EU ambassador, you know, why not have an EU well, ambassador? They, they can just, have an EU ambassador. You just don't get any of the perks. Yeah, exactly. But give them the perks, for God's sake. You know, be Diplomatic nice. community and an ability not to pay parking fines. I, I do love the idea of Britain getting out of Brexit and everyone is kind of happy and then just turning around to the ambassadors and going, but you, you don't get to meet the Queen. <laughs> Which is a key part of it, being an ambassador in Britain. You get to go in and show your credentials to the Queen. You get to present your credentials at the Court of St. James. And you get to buy one of those um, long, you know, those swallow, swallow-tailed coats and white tie jobs that nobody ever wears anymore, except when they become an ambassador and go to meet the Queen. And, it's the, you know, you want to have that photograph to give your mammy. It is actually quite interesting, because Britain's point is actually quite solid. The EU is going, well... We should be treated as a country because we've got a currency and we make our own laws and we have limited uh, military options. And Britain is just going, but you're not. And we, we, all, we were happy to do it when we had to deal with you, but now we don't. So, no, you don't get to do that anymore. Yeah. 
we're not going to play the pretend game anymore because we don't have to. And we've never liked you. <laughs> I never liked you and I never liked your mother. There is, there is on, um, we obviously go into vaccinations, but what I thought was a wonderfully uplifting uh, statement today, Michael, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. Was someone asked Leo about uh, mandatory quarantine for passengers coming into the country. And he said that that would be, he gave it a number of reasons, but one of the reasons he gave was that it would be too restrictive. And I just thought to myself, you know, that's going to be really comforting to all the people legally precluded from going beyond five kilometers from their home right now. Yeah, it would be too. Also, not trying to be deliberately think about it, but isn't the whole point of it is to be restrictive? Isn't that how you stop the virus coming into the places? Isn't it how way back, back in the in in the in the in the long ago before before times, when Australia declared a pandemic before the even though WHO was saying there was no pandemic. And Australia closed its airports uh, to travel from China and parts of South Asia, even though you, WHO, said, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. That's a bad idea. And they ended up having a very small, what they call seed population of the virus in the country, which meant in conjunction with some fairly savage lockdowning, they were able to control the thing. Because it was, Gary, restrictive. There was... There was a there were a couple of things I actually found interesting about it. He he said that well it wouldn't be needed as there's very high levels of compliance with the new mandatory requirement for incoming passengers to have a negative COVID nineteen test, and the files have been sent to the director of public prosecution on people who have arrived without that evidence. At which point you would probably go, wouldn't you just deport them though? Well, if yeah. It's mandatory to get into the country. Why would you? Regardless of what you think about whether or not it should be mandatory, if it is mandatory and they turn up without it, surely you just deport them as opposed to going, enjoy the rest of your holiday, prosecution will follow shortly. If the idea is to keep them out of the country, well, doesn't it seem rather perverse to keep them in the country in order to prosecute them for being in the country in the first place? Surely the handiest thing would be just to sort of turn them around, pat on the bum, off, off you go again. Thanks for coming come again, but, you know, in different circumstances. It just seems seems like a bit self-defeating as a policy. But then he went on to say that anyway, it wouldn't matter because uh, of the North. The, the phrase was, it might work on a two-island basis, as in between us and the UK, but it wouldn't work on two-thirds of an Ireland basis. And that's interesting to me because there was another story in the Irish Times, I think yesterday, and it was Stormont bemused by Republic stonewalling over COVID data. And I'll put a link to this in the bottom of the podcast. And the basic gist of it is the North has been trying to get the Irish government to give it COVID passenger data. Sorry, the, 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 this is reported in the Irish Times. Uh, reported the the bylaw under the byline of the the journalist Newton Emerson, who I think wins the prize for best named journalist in any Irish news outlet. Fantastic name, Newton Emerson. But I love the first the the, the, the his intro to the thing is brilliant. Genuine mystery surrounds the Irish government's lengthy refusal to share COVID passenger data with Northern Ireland. The government will explain it and will not explain it and nobody else can see what the issue might be. 
I have to say, as a piece of introduction writing to a piece, that's very good. I did, I did quite like it. And then he goes on to basically say, we have the data. It wouldn't be impractical to, to share it, or it shouldn't be. And now you've managed to get the DUP and Sinn Féin in the North on the same side, going, like, it would be really great if you could actually give us that data. And the British haven't got involved, and no one can get any response from Stephen Donnelly. And then it puts forward a number of reasons why this might be the case, starting with um, that the system that exists in Ireland may simply not work, and the Irish government doesn't want anyone to know it doesn't work. So they're not sharing the data, because then it would become pretty apparent it didn't actually work. Right. It, but it also goes into some of the restrictions in Northern Ireland, and I think the vaccination rates as well, and that in many ways they are stricter than Ireland. So it's this sort of a, well, we can't do that because of the North. That becomes harder and harder to do as more and more people in the North get vaccinated at the pace that the UK is setting. And the North is getting vaccinated at a faster rate, I think, than the rest of the UK. It's actually a pretty cutting article. And it has the line, perhaps there's no great mystery involved here. The Republic has never taken cross-border cooperation on COVID seriously, failing to even notify Stormont as it introduced and lifted lockdown measures, let alone working to coordinate them. And basically says, look, the Irish government, for all it says, does not give a shit about Northern Ireland in any way that would inconvenience them. No, the, the North is, all the North is is an opportunity for a certain kind of emoting and a certain kind of self-congratulatory language and maybe occasionally a stick to be Sinn Féin with. But after that, it's useful occasionally as a, as an excuse in the same way as, particularly if you're going to get other parts, you'd like to use Br- Brussels as an excuse for introducing certain kinds of legislation. Oh, well, we had to do it because Brussels made us, you know. Now, when we can't do something, you know, there's something they don't want to do, they say, oh, well, we can't, you know, because of, you know, the North and the border and, oh, Belfast Agreement and stuff, you know. Well, why is that? Ah, yeah, it's, it's all right. Yeah, but we just, we can't do it. And then they won't co- cooperate with this, you know. It's a nightmare up there. They're, oh, they're crazy people. You wouldn't, oh, you wouldn't believe what we put up with. So they don't, but they're not really interested in engaging with them. They don't take it seriously. And this is not a piece that is incredibly biased towards Stormont. I mean, it refers to Stormont as being akin to a glorified county council. But it does also end with the line, it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that when meaningful decisions are required, the Republic's political culture simply cannot countenance accommodating the North in any way that might oblige the South to suffer the slightest inconvenience. Any ear can hear the constitutional implications of that. Which I think is a fair point. That is, I think, perfectly reasonable. Now, from uh, one occupied territory to another, Michael, the vaccinations. But before I go into that, I do want to say that... By the time this podcast go live, goes live, there will be an article up on Gripped from the Israeli ambassador. I reached out to him there last week, uh, asking him to pu- put together a story for Gripped on why the Israeli vaccine program was going so well, what the Irish system could learn from it, what could be taken across. And um, I'd started to see stuff being passed around, even amongst quite like eminent media people on Twitter. Uh, saying that the Israelis were refusing to supply uh, vaccines to the Palestinians. So I asked him, look, would you also talk about that? And if it's true, it's true. But if it's not, explain exactly what's happening. So we should, it's it's a pretty good article. Um, I won't go into it to give you the joy of reading it. 
But I would imagine by the time this podcast goes live, it will already be live. So uh, that's, I think, will be well worth checking out. But uh, on the Irish vaccine scene, Michael, have we overtaken Israel? <laughs> no, you're just being smart alecky now. I'm, I'm bridging. I'm bridging two topics. That was your that was your version of a segue, was it? Oh, that was my version of a segue. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, we are we are not we are not uh, we are not of Israel's. Uh, twenty seven uh, on the twenty first of January, twenty seven point eight one percent of Israelis had received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine on the same date. Ireland's population two point four seven percent of Irish people had received one dose of vaccine, which is second in Europe, well, no, second in the EU, to <laughs> second in the EU only to Denmark, Denmark is in 3.0. I saw an article during the week, Gary said, all this talk about the UK being much faster and better and, and having a bigger, a better rollout because they left the EU is nonsense. If you actually average out their their vaccinations per day and all the only reason they have an advantage is because they started a month earlier and had more vaccine <laughs> you know it's a bit like saying the only reason that roger federer wins at tennis is because he's fitter and better at tennis than other people are so given the the eu were saying that they're able to do those things because they didn't have to wait for the european medicines agency that's a hard sell i would say michael as if anybody's interested the united kingdom is on 7.33 behind only Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel, and ahead of the United States. Well, Bahrain pulled ahead. Bahrain is up on 8.47%. Good on them. They were they were closing the last time I checked, but I had thought the uh, the daily doses had fallen down. This is fantastic. It's like a race. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. And you know what? It should be like a race. That's exactly what it should be. And there should be an element of competition. And we should want we should be there cheering everybody down, bursting it. And, it, and I think that... Uh, I think there should be prizes for the countries that get there first and their politicians. Um, but for the people, say, who come outside the first three, there should be very serious consequences. So that, you know, we should motivate our politicians and our administrators. Having said that, we, we are doing a lot better than we were set to do. We're doing a lot, 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 lot better than we're doing. If we look at the other metric that is of interest, which is the uh, seven-day rolling average of per 100 people in the population that are the number one in Europe, uh, again, is, well, again, sorry, I say in, in the EU, is Denmark with 0 0.13. United Kingdom is still actually well ahead with 0 0.44, which is like sort of three and a half times higher. Yeah, Denmark, Spain sneaks just ahead of us in at 0 0.13, but slightly better than us. And Slovenia is also on 0 0.13 behind us. France, Germany, Italy flaking are behind us. So, okay, what's the good news? The good news is that we are doing well on our daily averages, uh, which is the more important thing than, in, in a way, than, than the total that's been done so far, because it's obviously, we want to keep, we want to be, we want to be, we want to be increasing the number of people we do it as it goes. Problem, okay, other good news. Um, the minister has informed, has confirmed that, uh, Employed carers working for the HSE and private nursing homes will now be moved into the second group of people to get vaccinated, as will dentists. He said his move was based off expert advice. Now, Gary, 
I'm not going to say who's responsible. I'm simply going to observe that this was advice that we did give the minister in previous podcasts. I'm not saying it came from us. I'm not saying it came from Neffet. The listener can decide that. I did notice in the same round, uh, he said that uh, family carers will not be in that group. The minister said the decision over family carers was, quote, not his decision. (laughs) (laughs) Which is as explicit a cover my arms spotted politically as you could possibly. By the way, family carers won't be covered by this, but that was not my decision. All right. I thought that was um, good. There is a bit of a couple of blips here, uh, elements for concern. Uh, One is that we are, it's reported the buffer of vaccine doses will be almost empty by the end of the week. And this is connected to an under delivery from Pfizer. Now, there are a number of things possibly involved. One is that Pfizer, Pfizer's biggest plant, which I think is in Belgium, is being, they're doing work on it because they, they have, they want to ramp up its production capacity for the rest of the year. But that is interrupting some of the production in order to do that. But they're saying, you know, it's going to be, uh, as they're going to be maybe a week, uh, a week or so of uh, production interruptions is going to mean late deliveries, which is unfortunate, but it will mean that we will have substantially larger production capacity for the rest of the year. So this is a, it's on balance a good thing to do. In Germany and in Netherlands and other places, people are going very annoyed about this in the French, giving out about it because it was done without consultation. And you know the way we Europeans, we love our, we love our consultation, Gary. So whether or not had we six months ago gone to Pfizer directly and bought the vaccine without going through the AMA, without going through the, the, the AMA, but bought it as a sovereign nation ourselves, we would already have the vaccine and wouldn't have to worry about this. You know, Gary, that's the kind of speculation obviously you or I would not want to enter into because that would be just political point scoring and you know, who needs that. Another example of the kind of thing which would could involve political point scoring is the observation that you remember I you remember the minister Donnelly had said that it was their plan they were going to go to AstraZeneca and get the vaccine doses that would 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 be at least a portion of the vaccine doses due to Ireland to have them in Ireland before the EMA officially granted authorization. This was the plan anyway. The idea being that they would be sitting there ready, everybody be on their TPTs, ready, set, and then when go, when the pistol rang, then boom, out they would fly and we could boost our uh, vaccinations. Now, the idea is that when the AstraZeneca comes online, then we can go up to, uh, what is it, 100,000? 100,000, it can't be 100,000 a day, it must be 100,000 a week. Um, Anyway. Unfortunately, we won't be allowed to do that, Gary. The EMA has said no. The EMA or the Commission? Because uh, the Commission came out very strongly there, Michael, with another round of non-binding recommendations. Did they? Yes, yeah. It's um, Politico is reporting on this, and I've noticed a particular slant in Politico's uh, writing. But the they have an article titled Commission to EU Countries, Get with the Vaccine Programme. But it contains a fantastic line in it 
where you know when someone has been a media organization has been briefed and wants to put across a certain uh, angle but can't say it themselves so they're talking to the commission vice president whose name i can't pronounce and won't try and pronounce and it says that he refuses to acknowledge that many countries botched the rollout after the commission secured the vaccines and put them in their hands which is <laughs> yeah. an understanding of what happened that is an understanding of what happened, yeah. Anyway, I do have a proposal for you, because we're going to probably have to be doing these vaccination things quite commonly. So I propose that we do them in the style of race commentary, or possibly in an auctioneering style. It'll be quick, efficient, and it'll amuse us more than it'll amuse anyone else. Well, yeah, and as long as we're amused, that's the most important Did you ever thing. work as an auctioneer or anything of that like? I never worked as... I have conducted the odd auction you know perfect it's in part of my you know my charity work which i don't like to talk about well viewers enjoy that from next week where michael will be uh doing I, don't, that. I, I i think i i think i might prefer uh in this form of sports commentary i think I've, anyway we'll, we'll see we can play with it gary the important thing is to enjoy it the important thing with any mass vaccination program michael is to have fun with it and Taoiseach michael martin has said that the astrazeneca vaccine will not be delivered to Ireland until after it is approved by the EMA, despite hopes that it would come sooner. It had been hoped to have the vaccine here, so it could be used the moment it was authorised. Donnelly has said, however, there would be regulatory hurdles to this, and the company may not be able to do it. So it, it's important, Gary, that those regulatory hurdles are observed so that we can Wait for the extra 15 days before the vaccine gets here. Because, you know, you can't just have a free-for-all on this kind of thing. You know, just say, oh, no, it's a pandemic. Because then every time there's a pandemic, Gary, people will be just tearing up the rule book and ignoring the regulations. Weirdly enough, when you listen to the WHO, when they're talking about vaccination, their line is that that's actually exactly what's happening. Except it's just rich countries versus everyone else. Like, the third world has not started vaccinating. It's not going to start vaccinating, bar some supplies of basically the kind of vaccines that wouldn't get used in Europe because they're not the best vaccines. They're just maybe vaccines. Because we bought fucking everything. <laughs> well, there was yeah, that wonderful yeah. moment of, you know, global, solid, or global solidarity uh, that lasted exactly to the moment you could put an order in. How else is it to be done? No, no, I I, I, I think, you know, I am, I am a straight-down-the-line realist, Michael, although there's various types. Countries will look out for their own interests. But the amusing thing is that all of these countries, minutes beforehand, were like, of course, solidarity with, you know, the global south and... Uh, poverty and um all of those things and then someone the, the shop opened the shutter came up and there's like no fuck those purrs oh i uh, well i can't the russians and the chinese i'm i, I get the impression are are, are 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 around the gaff hawking their various their various vaccines the russians only have one do they it's sputnik v and then the Chinese have two. They have the one they're exporting. Oh, well, they've two. They've and another two coming down fairly soon, I think. So they have the the one that's being used by most of their military and some of the civil uh, 
organizations and then there's the one that's being exported which is showing results all over the shop the russian one seems to be getting pretty decent results it does but i mean both of those countries are absolutely going to ship them around to the third world there are complaints inside russia about russia exporting vaccines before everyone in russia is vaccinated but of course they're going to do that because at this point the us and the eu are going to look entirely after their own people now the large pharma companies have I think all of them promised hundreds of millions, if not uh, uh, up to a billion, uh, depending on the company, of free vaccines. Oh, yeah, and they'll get them. Eventually. They will get them. Eventually. Even if the poor countries could pay, most of these com- most of these companies have incredible market share in the developed world. And all it would take is a member of government going, well, lads, like, yeah, you could send the vaccines to them. But... You know, the next time you try and get something regulated or, you know, tested here, it might be fiercely difficult for you. Also, pharma, basically. Pharma is a first world product. To the extent that the pharmaceuticals are present in third world, again, a big pharma is always, you know, it's, it's the, the great enemy is one of the great enemies, along with sort of Monsanto in the United States. But actually, they fire huge amounts of free pharmaceuticals around the third world. They, they, they make very... I'm just curious. I'm just wondering, Gary. Not to, what you would have any reason to know. They might have come across maybe in your voluminous reading a reference to it. Brazil and India both have very, very extensive pharmaceutical uh, industries, uh, which specialise in the production of generic versions of uh, drugs. I'm wondering, in the case of this, and with the data that's available, how hard would it be to copy these things, I wonder? I don't know. There have been calls for the development of a generic COVID-19 vaccine. In relation to Brazil, I'd say it's probably unlikely they'll go after something because they've already licensed to produce the Chinese or one of the Chinese vaccines there. In case of India, I mean, they do have massive generic capabilities, but I, I don't know in relation to these particular vaccines how easy they are to replicate, particularly with the fact that some of these are relatively new types of technology. Or at least in this application, I mean, that might involve substantial retoolings and things like that. So it might be incredibly expensive. Um, just on, on the point there where I was talking about China and Russia will export this to third world countries. They'll do that because it's a very easy way to score influence. Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is soft power at its best. And also both of those countries don't have the same pushback that you would see in democratic countries. Where for all we will go, you know, we're very lovely and we love everyone and we want to be global citizens. Any movement towards sending supplies of vaccines to a third party will be met with ferocious pushback. But you know what? The irony, the funny thing about that is they would get it in both barrels from both ends. Because on one hand, you'll have people saying, you know, charity begins at home and you've no business going abroad when we still have people to be done. On the other end, if you're talking about, say, if it, specifically they say the Chinese or the Russian uh, vaccine as they're being rolled out, is they'd say you can't send these vaccines abroad because they haven't been properly tested. There is the data isn't in the f- you haven't got full you haven't got uh, you haven't finished even your third phase clinical trials. So you can't you're just up you're experimenting on poor people. This is deeply wrong and immoral and another example of colonialism and imperialism. You get it from both sides. No, there's no way the West could do it with the vaccines that they have. I would suspect that in a lot of Western countries, the idea of exporting something like that in order to gain long-term influence 
over a country probably didn't even come up, just wasn't even considered. Everyone is all about democratic peace theory now and loving people and not enough about power. Yet surely, God, somebody's going to say, I, I, I would be incredibly disappointed you know, if, they, if they hadn't made up a list of the half dozen most important co- countries for whatever geopolitical reason and said, OK, we're going to talk to these and tell them that, you know, you won't have to wait till September, October, December. We will get stuff to you early. Do you, you think that. the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs has such a list? No, but I'm saying the French Department doesn't. I'd say the French might. British probably do. Nothing yeah. at the EU level. Germans might. They get a bit weird about stuff. The Americans definitely. Oh, the Americans definitely do. Anyway, in other vaccine news, as I say, they, so we won't be getting the AstraZeneca rolled out bang, bang, as we had hoped, because regulatory hurdles exist and the EMA, the European Medicine Authority, says no, 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 you can't do that. Now, Gary, you might say, well, but I thought health was a sovereign state prerogative. Yes, but we have gone, we decided not to go down that route. We have pooled our sovereignty because when you pool your sovereignty, you become stronger and become even more sovereign. With the European sovereignty, we have gone down the way of buying it. So we have got our vaccines later and now we're going to have these delayed. In other news, Johnson & Johnson are going to be off the rack probably sometime in February, which will be a big help because it's a single jab job. Only one jab needed for the Johnson Johnson. The results are looking good there. The minister has announced that he believes that everybody in the state, every citizen, every resident of the state, I think not actually not citizen, resident of the state, will have been offered a vaccination by September. So September is now set down as the the goalpost. Let's see if we can harry them and hassle them and beat them uh, in getting that into August and then from August into July and so on and so forth. Well, at least let's get me vaccinated very, very soon. And after that, frankly, you know, I think it should be down to the freedom of people to decide what they want to do. Although... Once I'm vaccinated, I think we should also look very seriously at opening up vaccination passport pubs and restaurants where people who have been vaccinated can go and drink with other vaccinated people and have dinner with other vaccinated people or go to the cinema. Vaccinations, you wouldn't have to have a cinema in every town, but maybe a cinema, you know, in every county where people who have been vaccinated, who don't have the plague, who have been declared clean, can go. I think that would be a very positive thing. And it would keep our spirits up. Things are doing. It's about keeping the spirits up, Michael, and avoiding disproportionate measures. Absolutely. We don't want disproportionate measures, Gary. That's the last thing we want. Disproportionate or restrictive measures. On the plus side, at least we've moved on from the, well, we can't close our borders to the Italians because they might not like it. So we've, <laughs> we've advanced in our terminology. I Have think we? so. I don't know. I, I, if now, the, we're, I, I, now we're not referring to states as if they were people with feelings. No, right. But I'm assuming that's a movement in the right direction. Well, if the Italians fly into Belfast, what happens? Why would an Italian go to Belfast, Michael? Titanic? But not, not, they don't have the Titanic experience. 
So there you go. I mean, you can't even market Belfast as a dangerous place anymore. When was the last time something good blew up in Belfast? One Direction concert, I don't know. I just, I like the fact that Belfast, and it's not, it's not an original observation, but it's, it's, it's still true, that the single biggest tourist attraction of Belfast is a museum dedicated to a ship that sank, that they built. We built this ship! We built it, and we said it would be unsinkable. And the first time it went across the sea, it sank. An ice, a thing, an ice thing floating in the sea hit it, and it sank. You know, it's not exactly the world's greatest adverti- advertisement for the for the high quality of the the craftsmanship and work of of the working men of the Belfast shipyards. As as someone who has made that point to people in Belfast, I found the general response was, "Well, it was fine when it left." <laughs> It was grand the last time we saw it. And then, it went. of course, it went to Cove, so who knows? So moving on from the vaccination stories to a story I just want to mention, because it is one of the few, assuming this all turns out to be true, and it could be total horseshit, uh, because it's a story from a foreign country being reported by foreign press based on a single report of the AFP. Uh, but it's also the amount of things I've heard referred to as Kafkaesque and just aren't, simply are not Kafkaesque. They're just odd. This could actually legitimately be Kafkaesque. It's a story, and I'll copy a link to it, um, to the best version of it I've been able to find, because it's it's in French. And it's a woman who has spent three years trying to prove to French courts that she is alive, because a previous French court found that she was dead. Yeah, you see, (laughs) if you had never had an experience with the Napoleonic system, which many people over here say, we should have the robotic system, the code system, much better than this terrible adversarial system we have here and the messiness of common law. You you would look at this and say, well, you know, when she turned up the first time, would that not have been considered fairly probative of the fact that she was, in fact, not dead? But if you've ever, if you've ever been involved in the, as uh, I have unfortunately had the experience of dealing with the, the old Napoleonic system. No, no, that's nowhere near enough. It is very much a case. Well, that's what you say, madam. But we have documentation here, which which has been notarized, I might say, and recognized by a judge of, the, of a junior court that you are in fact dead. So I can't just take your word on it. And that is not, that is absolutely what happened. They, they're very respectful of the law in France. Our French lawyers. Very, very much so. So basically, this woman has lost her ID cards, her driver's license, her bank accounts, and her health insurance because she's dead. And I think she also said they took her car away for unpaid loans because she can't make payments because she's dead. Now, Gary, I just want to make the point that that's not unreasonable if she was dead. You know, both of these people, people saying, well, you can't make a payment because you're dead, and someone saying, I am alive. In isolation, Michael, both of those points are perfectly accurate. Absolutely, yeah. Reasonable. The problem has come in the combination of them. It's, yeah, it's that moment where the immovable object and the unstoppable force, basically, they meet and resolve by creating what is essentially a nuclear explosion. Or in this case, this poor woman having to go to court for three years. Yeah, so basically, it looks, looks like this is what happened, assuming the reporting is accurate. This woman used to own a cleaning business, and she let an employee go. That employee came back to her with a court case. It it sounds like it might have been for wrongful dismissal. But anyway, the woman lost the court case, 
the the employee lost the court case, and she then brought an appeal. Now, according to uh, what's being reported, the woman who is now being declared dead stopped responding to correspondence from her employee's lawyer. And that led her employee's lawyer to go to the Court of Appeals in Lyon and Mm -hmm. say that she was dead. Now, the problem comes is that when it was claimed that she was dead and no proof was provided, everyone just assumed it was right. Why should she lie? And no one checked. And because no one checked, the Court of Appeal in Lyon, which is not that lower level of a court, uh, ruled that she was dead. Made a ruling that said clearly that you know it was being made because she was dead, and I mean, um, it, 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 that's the bit that gets me. I mean, there's a thing in Italian law which they may have in French law, which is called auto, auto certification, which is only a, a newish thing, which is basically you can certify yourself to be who you are without having to produce lots and lots of evidence. But generally speaking, historically in these countries, with you have the Napoleonic Code. You actually have to prove who you are. So the idea, I, I'm fascinated with the idea that this woman said, oh, she's dead. And all of them just went, okay, fair enough. Then nobody decided, well, well, just I'll just check rip.fr. R-I, because there's, there's, there's no funeral coming up for her. Um, let's just check the register of deaths. She's not registered as dead. Are you sure she's dead? This doesn't seem to have happened. Again, assuming the reporting that we have seen is in any way accurate, they just seem, they just seem to say, well, fair enough. That's the thing. There, there, there are some oddities like that. But And I also like it, the lawyer who said it's her own fault if she's been declared dead. Uh, says, you know, well, for example, she refused to answer correspondence, which sort of implied she was answering correspondence for a while, which I hope were just questions about whether or not she was dead yet. And then when she stopped responding, they're like, well, logically, she's dead. If she can't answer a question, if she's dead or not, she's dead. <laughs> That's my favourite bit. But also, the, the, core, the, the woman uh, took this case against her. Her employee took the case against her in 2009. Yeah. And went to the appeals court in 2016. So I imagine if you've had seven years of someone sending you solicitor's letters, eventually you're just going to stop responding. I loved this. Again, assuming reporting etc there's a very strong implication when they said that she stopped responding to communications <laughs> they've been sending these communications saying so so you just you're dead you know are you are you dead and i could i can just imagine you know, you get two a three four of these emails and you, you say well no no i'm not dead and eventually you just say oh for fuck's sake you mark them as spam and you direct them in and out your field, you're not going But they said, well, she's just stopped answering. I'm sorry. I'm taking that to mean that she must be dead. Because surely if she was alive, she'd keep answering our letters or our communications asking her if she is dead. But anyway, she, um, she has, she's trying to get the court declaration of her death to be declared invalid. And she has had some progress, Michael. According to a quote... From uh, the French translation, this is what she said. State agencies tell me I am no longer dead, but that I am not yet officially recognised as alive. <laughs> you see, you know, this is what I'm saying to you about this. As you, as you quite correctly observed, people use this phrase Kafkaesque a lot. And the thing is, you know, people use it to say, oh, it was a nightmare situation. 
But it, Kafka it goes back to that story. What, what, what's how does it start? Uh, he 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 when he he woke up in the morning and he 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 knew something had happened because he was on he was on trial, but he didn't know what. He, oh no! Was. Yes, it was uh, somebody must have made a false accusation against Joseph, for he yes. was arrested one morning without having done anything wrong. Kafka is really good at first sentences, by the way. Yeah. That and the first sentence of the metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is fantastic sentence. But that's exactly that. So he's suddenly, Kafka's found, he's in this this terrible situation where he's been charged with something which, he, which is obviously like, because he hasn't done anything wrong, but he doesn't know what he's been charged. That, this is genuinely Kafka. She's now been informed that she's not dead. However, she's not alive either. I, I can absolutely <laughs> see that happening in a bureaucracy. It's like, We've gotten the certification of death. It's been moved off, but we have to recertify you as alive, and we haven't, so you're just in that limbo right now. And do you know why I lay odds? I lay odds that when she's not dead, she's liable to tax. I was just thinking there's going to be a tax bill at the end of this. But because she's not alive, she isn't able to access any other service. Like if you went to hospital, no, you you're not alive. So I'm sorry, you can't have any hospital. You can't go to the doctor. You 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 can't, you can't buy a you can't buy a year's ticket for the Paris Metro. But the only thing that you will be able to do is pay taxes. I love that you lost her health insurance, particularly. <laughs> she was dead, Gary. What did they do? <laughs> that's what they call a pre-existing condition. I just, I love the idea, because she'd call them and they wouldn't be able to talk to her because she wouldn't have any of the you know, the ability to access her account. So her husband would have then had to call them and say he wanted an account for his wife. They'd be like, but sir, your wife is dead. They'd be like, no, she's <laughs> not dead. I have to say, I, I think this brilliant. In a very small way, I had a similar experience this, trying to persuade somebody that I wasn't, I, I didn't live in Rome and I'd never I'd never been a resident there and I had been told as well I should have declared the loss of my identity card and I said but I never had an identity card but then you but you must have had because you're a resident in Rome but said I never was a resident in Rome well, then why when did you why did you lose your and it went on and on and on it, 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 once you get into these circles the, it, it is it is almost impossible to break out you actually have to they have to break a rule at some stage. You have to get a, a person in authority to lit, to say, "Okay, that's the rule," but we're going to break the rule because otherwise it just goes around and around and around, and it, you just gen, you just go mad. But that's fantastic. You can just imagine the husband, and you because they'd have to ask for the purposes of uh, your uh, confidentiality, sir. We have we can't actually talk to anybody except the person on the account. Well, here's my wife. No, sir, I'm sorry. We can't talk to your wife because your wife is actually dead, sir. So who do I talk to? Well, um, I'll put you on to customer services. <laughs> and then the sort of, well, she's not dead. She's not alive on the system either. So, <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. And I wonder what she be eligible for compensation. Because somebody made a mistake. I mean, somebody just. Yeah, you see, the problem is the people who made the mistake were a French court. Yeah. So I can just tell you right now, no, there will not be any compensation. The French are not mad on the on on the state being held responsible. That's not complete. There was a case there of a uh, a guy that got out of prison who had been in prison wrongly because of a mistake. I mean, it's like actually, there's a really interesting documentary on Netflix. I think it is about a murder that occurs in the south of France, 
about uh, there's a Dutch couple I think they were went to live in this and they end up getting murdered one of the, the and it, it, it goes into the whole life in a very small French village but the but the legal system and the court system and the police and all that is fascinating if that gives you enough an idea to sort of have a go at googling it sort of google French country murder documentary setting country whatever you'll find it it's really good but it gives you an insight into the legal systems which yeah it's it's very different it's just very different anyway that's that's a right story I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that I hope it doesn't turn out to be total horseshit yeah it would be disappointing that if actually if all it is is a, re, a rehashing of a, of a casca short story so just I suppose to to close just a, a quick note we had talked before about the the Tavistock the child gender clinic and they had lost a case they had then uh, tried to get a right to appeal they had failed at the first hurdle they have now successfully gotten uh, a right to appeal so that'll be uh, moving forward. And basically, if you if you didn't hear about the judgment, the judgment against them was basically saying that they had not uh, held themselves to required standards. And it basically put a stop to all, uh, to the giving of uh, what are now called gender-affirming hormone treatments to children under 16. That language changed very quickly. That was not what that used to be called. But now every official documentation I look at has that term. Really? Yeah. I'm I'm willing to say that on the last time I was looking at this indeed, and I was looking at a lot of documentation, was around three to four weeks ago, and that was not the language they were using. Well, it's it's the language now. The Irish College of GPs just sent out a letter about it. It's also, that's fr- that, I mean, that's a pretty crude framing of the question just yeah, by you, that language you don't often get medical treatments which in the name of the medical treatment go this is an appropriate uh, response i saw the comment of a prominent irish psychiatrist who has written on this subject lamenting the decision of the gps to go in this direction in the light of the court's decision with tavistock and the kira case and saying you know you know, basically, be careful. Court cases coming. Yeah. So on the the GP's letter, which I hadn't hadn't meant to mention, but as Michael brought up, they sent out a, a letter on treatment options for gender dysphoria, and on that they treated. Uh, they said that puberty blockers, gender hormones, are considered reversible interventions, which is interesting because that is not in any way, as far as I know. And I, I am going to try and chase this up with the Irish College of GPs. That is not settled science in any way the research that was done on this were done or was done on children who had what's called precocious puberty which is incredibly early uh, development of puberty and in those cases it was found that it was uh, it, it had no negative effects but in this case that's not what it's being used for it's being used in those cases it was used to push puberty from a very early age to what would be considered a normal age in this case it's being used to push puberty from a normal age to a later age and we don't have research that suggests that's that's reversible. There's little bits and pieces. Just want to I just want to observe maybe the observation on passing that the Irish College of GPs tweeted that they, in conjunction with LGBT.ie and Teni T E N I, have developed two sets of guidance documents to assist GPs in providing best healthcare for the LGBT community. So this was done in conjunction with the Transgender Equality Network of Ireland. Now, 
that's a, it seems to me that is essentially that's an advocacy group tenai particularly are um yeah are very much in that space and whether or not that was wise i would uh, i would suspect considering the recent judgment in the tavistock case and what that said about um about puberty blockers and hormonal interventions if that court was right and an irish court was to find on similar grounds the uh, there would be probably a significant amount of court cases and that evidence would not help them but um yeah it it is the reason i'm bringing up now partially because they got the right to the appeal but also because uh cqc which is the care quality commission in ireland or sorry in the uk Britain, it's, it's yeah. it looks at their trusts and their hospitals and basically sees how HICWA. HICWA, HICWA, basically it's it's the british equivalent of HICWA did a um, an inspection of the Tavistock clinic and in particular they looked they looked at everything but the gender identity services in particular were looked at they were they moved from a rating of good to a rating of inadequate they had said they had significant concerns but some of the concerns they had were very illuminating about problems that Tavistock ran into in the court case mm-hmm. when Tavistock was asked to provide things like um of the children who come to you, how many of them do you find can't consent to the treatments that you're proposing? And Tavistock couldn't answer, and they were asked, you know, uh, about gender breakdowns, about how many children who take um, puberty blockers go on to have uh, surgical interventions, and they couldn't answer. They could answer basically nothing. But that comes up in this report because one of the points they make is um, that's. Before January 2020, Tavistock had no systematic record keeping. They took a sample of um, one period in March and they just took 10 records randomly of young people who'd been referred for hormone blockers. And only three of those contained a completed consent form and a checklist for referral. So 30% on that sample size. That's a very small sample size. We can't say that that is um, that's likely to be the rate over the entire thing. But if that were the case, you were putting people forward for what the court said was a pathway to irreversible surgical intervention and further intervention. And in only 30% of cases, you've bothered to actually complete the consent form. That doesn't sound great. That does not sound good. I'll put a, a I'll put a link to the report itself. There's been some reporting of this actual report in Ireland. The Irish Times, weirdly enough, covered it and pretty much as a straight news piece. There was no uh, there was no real attempt to spin it. There was just this is the facts. And um, we had been sending people over to Tavistock. That stopped in light of the finding of that court case. But the report is just buried in the CQC uh, website. So I will put a link to it it seems like there was absolutely no control over um over what was um what was happening there and Tavistock was considered quite one of the better clinics like uh, just on a, an operational level that it was well run the Tavistock I mean Tavistock would be hasn't I wouldn't have said particularly for gender identity uh, clinic but as a as a as a, as a as a clinic dealing with psychiatric illnesses or psychiatric medicine it has an international reputation it's I mean, it's a place where people will go to do interns and do post uh, post uh, uh, postdoc studies and then you go going to the Tavistock would be something would, would, would look very well in your 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 CV so it's I know that 
I know in so far as I've read a number of times the last couple of years, they have lost a lot of staff who were unhappy with the direct the direction the GIDS section was taking in the Tavistock. So maybe, you know, when you lose staff and you can't replace them, particularly when you're talking about particularly high 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 level of quality and qualification that a place like the Tavistock might require, and that obviously will increase leads to increased caseloads and longer waiting times. That will diminish the kind of quality of the service you can you can offer. So perhaps there is a staffing issue here as well, which is not unconnected to the policy of the, uh, the, the, the general clinic. I mean, there is some stuff in the report that is legitimately surprising for any kind of medical facility. So stuff like, um, they said staff assessments of patients were unstructured, inconsistent and poorly recorded. Staff did not record their reasoning in reaching clinical decisions. That would seem fairly basic. So you, you have all these reports that there's no consistency behind and no reason given for why you're recommending people. There's also, interesting, concluding that the service was not consistently well-led, the inspectors also reported staff did not always feel respected, supported and valued. Some said they felt unable to raise concerns without fear of retribution. Which in a medical context, that you know, whatever about like you're working in a, you're selling toner. You know, if you're in a in a clinic and you you can't raise your concerns without fear of retribution, is not a good thing, Gary. Or this one: the records of young people who began medical treatment before January 2020 did not include a record of their capacity, competency, and consent. That we said, but this: when staff identified records without a written capacity assessment, so consent forms, do they understand what's going to happen? Are they, like, is this something, are they mentally in a space where they understand what they're doing? So when staff identified records without that, they did not seek to address this or record it as an incident. So no one Hmm. was looking, which is quite odd because not only were people not filling these in, other people were becoming aware of it and just not dealing with it. Well, you know, I'm sure uh, since uh, this case is going to the appeal, uh, we'll we'll be coming back to the Tavistock at some stage in the future. Absolutely. But it does, I mean, when we were talking about the court case and the result of it and then why the initial repeal went so badly, and there was, I know we were talking about, I mean, the Tavistock, if they had simply supplied more evidence, if they had just showed the results, if they had been able to stand over what they were doing, yeah, in a yeah. more systematic way. And we couldn't figure out why they couldn't do so. And now it looks like they just weren't collecting records. It almost felt at times like they were deliberately not deli- giving evidence because they thought it would be damaging to them because why it, you, you, it was hard to believe that a professional organisation with the reputation of the Tavistock would not have this basic kind of records. But it looks like they may have a genuine problem with their record keeping. There was a point where they were asked about how many of the people who took uh, puberty blockers went on for further uh, treatments in that area. And they said that they didn't know, but they'd done some research and it wasn't peer-reviewed, so they wouldn't, they couldn't submit it. And the judges said, we're happy to view it, even without peer review, to get a sense of, you know, your experience. And the Tavistock just didn't submit it. And you kind of get the sense from that that I, I wonder if that actually exists. They also were asked questions about... Um Age differentials, if I remember, wasn't it? They were asked how many, what what was the youngest child they had uh, treated for this? They'd given uh, hormonal interventions to in the past number of years. And then they were asked what the average age of child they would do it. And 
I think in the average age, they said it's never been uh, tabulated. So yeah. we have the raw figures. We've just never bothered to check. And uh, you did kind of get the sense throughout that the judges were just deeply unimpressed. And that if they had just put some evidence forward, they might have got a different result. But it's hard to see them fixing this by the time of the appeal, because British courts are not Irish courts. They move with speed. And well, frankly, initially, they weren't even given leave to appeal on the basis that the case was so basically the case was so clear and cut that the likelihood of, a not, of any other verdict other than the one that had been given seemed to be vanishingly unlikely. So I wouldn't be holding out massive hope for if you were if that was the side that you were cheering on in this particular football match. But so I suppose we'll be back. On Sunday, with our huge Sunday miscellany, as long as technical gremlins and other things don't interfere with us, as has happened before. But other than that, mind yourselves, keep yourselves, keep yourselves yourselves, wash your hands, and stay indoors. All the best. <laughs>